You'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you, as you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. To Judges chapter 7. We are, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the midst of a series. We've been in it for a few weeks now. Uh, kind of an overview through the book of Judges. Uh, and, and the series is entitled, Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken promise, broken leaders in God's unbroken promise. And last week we began looking at the, the story of Gideon. What we're doing is we're, we're, we're basically just focusing on the six major judges uh, in the book of Judges. There are 12 judges total, six minor, six, six major, and we're just, we're focusing on the major judges and kind of telling their story a little bit. And so we're going to be looking again at Gideon. And so I know you just sat down, but I want to invite you to stand And I want to read into your hearing uh, just one verse of Scripture. Don't get too excited. We're going to talk about two and a half chapters. But I just want to read into your hearing rather than reading two and a half chapters, which we're going to walk through. I just want to read one verse to kind of set the stage. Judges chapter 7. And I want to read verse 2. And the author writes this. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that we need God all the time. We need God all the time. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and the fact that you are a God who saves and a God who speaks and a God who holds all things. God, I ask that you would hold us this morning. I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We need God all the time. I, uh, as some of you may know, I'm... I'm currently uh, in the midst of a doctoral program because life's not busy enough. Um, so I decided to add that in as well. Uh, by the grace of God, I'm on the downhill slope of that, that degree. However, I've, en- I've enjoyed the program so far. I am, I'm in a tract. I'm writing uh, a dissertation that focuses a little bit more on race in the church and multi-ethnic churches. Um, but I'm in a tract that's called Faith and Culture. And basically the whole tenor of this program is how our faith engages the current cultural milieu that we find ourselves in. So we're not doing a lot of looking back at church history, all that. We're looking at the culture right now, what's going on in the world, and trying to bring our faith to bear. Currently I'm enrolled in a class that's called Cultural Apologetics. I promise this is more than just like a life update about Michael. There's a point to this, okay? I'm in a, I'm in a class that's called Cultural Apologetics. And this class focuses on understanding the way that the world thinks and how we bring the beauty of the Christian faith to bear, specifically the gospel, to bear on a culture that has so many options to choose from. And how we present Christianity in such a way that it's not just another option amongst a plethora of other options. So in other words, how do we engage our secular culture? And in one of the books that I was reading, I read a very interesting argument. And he argued that the starting point is to recognize that Christians are not actually separate from the secular culture. 
He said, in fact, secular culture has shaped us. It's even shaped how we worship in more ways than we might know. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first read that, I was a little irritated. I was like, you don't know me, right? I was like, you don't know new breed. You don't know us. We're built different. But then I kept reading. And I said, oh, he's right. Because one of the things that he argues is that one of the marks of the secular culture that we live in is distraction. It's distraction. And the reason that distraction is so prevalent is because our world holds to a bunch of views that make no sense when you actually put them next to each other and look at them side by side. And the only way that we don't have to reckon with the fact that the world doesn't have to reckon with the fact that their beliefs make no sense is to distract themselves from having to do any deep thinking. And he, he argues that that we are in a culture that is obsessed with distraction. And I think some of you might relate to this. And even as he started giving examples, he started picking on me, church. He talked about the fact how some of us can't even go to the bathroom anymore without taking our phones with us. Like the, the three minutes, I'm being gracious to y'all, the three minutes <laughs> that you're in the bathroom, you can't manage without Twitter, without Instagram. But the author was honest about himself. He said, you know, he'll run upstairs to get something in the midst of playing with his kids and have to go back to get his phone because he can't even walk up the stairs without his phone. It's not just technology, though. Some of us know that... that we distract ourselves in other ways, right? We don't want to do the deep introspection, the thinking, the soul searching, even as Christians. So when we're by ourselves, it's one of the first things we do. We call people, you got to come hang out with me. I just can't be by myself. Isolation is, 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 is like the new cardinal sin. And all of this distracts us from having to do deep thinking, thinking that will point us to the Lord, ultimately cultivate wonder and worship in our lives. And this isn't just a problem for the lost world. It is a danger for us as a church. Let's be honest with you. I'm about to preach for 45 minutes. Some of you will barely make it through that because it's the longest you focus on anything all week long. We are a distracted, obsessed culture. We no longer, even as Christians, sit and and we're, we don't know how to just be amazed at who God is. And on top of that, we spend very little time even reflecting on our own spiritual walks. What we think about God, what we believe about ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, our sins, our struggles. We distract ourselves out of any real dependence on God. And so after I was reading that, right, I'm not trying to pick on you. Some of you are like, why you got to start that heavy? I'm just, we're getting there. But after reading that, I was like, man, he, he, he gets me. I was reminded of the truth that even in my own life, there is an ever-present temptation to live as if we are practical atheists. I don't mean like we're almost an atheist. We're practically an atheist. No, I mean we live like we're practical atheists. Professor Rubel Shelley explains it like this, that practical atheism is holding on to an intellectual commitment to belief in God, but thinking, feeling, and behaving as if there is no God. So we believe in our head that God is real. We might know in our head that God is real, but we live as if he has no place in our life. According to the Catholic French philosopher Etienne Bournet, practical atheism is not the denial of the existence of God, but complete godlessness of action. In other words, let's just be honest. We're going in deep this morning. Thanks for visiting, visitors. You and I are tempted to acknowledge God with our minds, but live most of our lives like what we can see in this world is all that matters. And I know it's true, because I watch some of our worship. 
And we act as if all that matters is that we think the right things and that our worship doesn't involve all of our body. Now, there is a temptation to acknowledge God with our minds but live most of our lives like we, like all we can see in this world is all that matters. Now, I said intentionally to live most of our lives as if God doesn't matter because for the Christian, it's unlikely that we will go all of our life without living as God is real because there is a grace of God that keeps us running back to him. It's pain. It's trial. It's hardship. For the believer, these realities have a way of reorienting us back to God and they often force us to depend on him. So don't be mistaken. Often we are longing for the grace of God to get us out of the trial and we miss the grace of God that led us into the trial. You know, there are times in life where the only reason you turned to God was because you knew that God was all you had left. Let's be honest. We fought, we tried, we couldn't get out. The trial was too much. The struggle was too great. We gave it all that we had and we had nothing left and all we had was God and it reoriented us back to him. But we praise God that he's always there. See, it's in the battle where we're first to recognize what we explored last week with Gideon, that we are insufficient people, but we have a sufficient God. And God's not just sufficient for the battle. He's sufficient all the time. And we are not just insufficient when trials come. We are insufficient all the time. And what I'm getting at, the whole point of this introduction is to tell you that we need God all the time. Not just in the trial. We need God before the trial. We need God after the trial. We need God all the time. In our text this morning, as we consider the story of Gideon, it is positioned to teach us that that there is not a moment in our lives where we don't need God. And so what I want to do, I know it, we're taking kind of a 30,000 view. It's hard to go through two and a half chapters of scripture in one sermon. And so there's a lot that we're not going to be able to touch on that we're, we're going we're gonna to have to skip over. I want to encourage you, though, if you haven't already been doing this, read through the book of Judges. I told you at the beginning, we're not going to be able to look at every line, every verse, every word. But Judges is rich. Study along uh, with the sermon. Study what we miss. Even next week, there's, or, or what comes next is the story of Gideon's son, but he's not a judge, so we're not even going to touch on Abimelech, but there's some lessons to be learned there. So read through Judges. Study Judges. But in, in our text this morning, what I want to do is I want to follow the movement of the text. There are really three movements that I want you to see. We see Gideon before the battle takes place. We see Gideon in the midst of the battle, and we see what takes place after the battle is over. And as we track those three movements, I believe there'll be some lessons for us to learn along the way. So here's, here's the first thing that I want you to see, and it's that we need God before the battle. We need God before the battle. So the story begins, and we, we see Gideon preparing to go into battle. Now, if you remember back to last week, I'll set the stage a little bit. Before God delivers them from the consequences of their sin, right? That They're in this cycle of sin again. They have been worshiping idols. They've been rebelling against God. God delivers them into Midianite captivity. They've been oppressed for some time. Uh, Midian's like nothing they've seen before. It says that they, they show up like locusts. They take all their food. I mean, they are, they are being oppressed, and that is a consequence for their idolatry. And before God delivers them from the consequences, what we saw last week is God had to deliver them from the idolatry itself, which is why God uses Gideon to tear down the altars. 
But now we get to the point where God is going to deal with Midian. He is going to deal with the consequences of their sin. And that just says something about God, doesn't it? God is so good that he's going to deliver them not only from the sin, but from the consequence of their sin. God is willing to fight the whole battle. So as we pick up, Midian and the enemy forces are all gathered together. And look at what it says there in Judges 6, verse 33. It says, And all the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, and camped in the Jezreel Valley. So all of Midian has kind of gathered together. And then we see what happens next in verse 34. And it says, And the Spirit of the Lord enveloped or clothed Gideon. Now, now don't miss this. We, we already talked about the fact that one of the defining marks of the judges in general, of all of the judges, is that they're not operating out of their own strength. They are not operating out of their own ability, their own might, that the judges are only operating out of the strength that the Lord provides through His Spirit when it comes to, their, to the deliverance of the people. In other words, not one of these judges is some super faithful person that qualified them to be used by God. It's because God fills them with his spirit. And for Gideon, we can't forget the weight of this moment. Because earlier in chapter 6, you remember back to last week, if you remember, Gideon didn't believe the angel of the Lord when God called Gideon to be Israel's deliverer. Gideon says in in Judges 6.15, he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's family. But do you remember what God said to him in the very next verse? But I will be with you. God promised that the strength Gideon needed to win the battle wouldn't come because Gideon was qualified. It wouldn't come because Gideon was a skilled warrior. It wouldn't come because he had the most influential and godly family. No, the strength Gideon needed to win the battle would come simply because God would be with him. Remember what we said last week. What qualifies Gideon is not his ability. It is not his strength. It is not his experience. The only thing that qualifies Gideon for service is the promise of divine presence. And in verse 34, God is already showing his faithfulness by keeping his word and clothing Gideon in his spirit. The divine presence has come upon Gideon. So Gideon begins to rally those in Israel who will fight Midian alongside of him. In Judges 6, verse 35, it says he sent messengers through all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. And so when all was said and done, when all the troops had gathered with Gideon, there are 32,000 troops ready to fight Midian. That's a good number. 32,000 people show up to fight Midian. But then Gideon does something interesting. And read with me beginning in verse 36. It says, Then Gideon said to God, So all of the troops have gathered, and then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel by me, As you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by me, as you said. And that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon then said to the Lord, Don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. And that night God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece 
was dry and the dew was all over the ground. There are a lot of opinions about what is going on here with the fleece, with Gideon. And, and it's interesting because the biggest argument seems to focus on whether or not Gideon was doubting or whether he was simply doing, being led by the Spirit, what God called him to do. So basically, they want to know, is Gideon being a flake again? Is Gideon still not trusting God? Or is there something else happening? But the more I've studied it, the more I think, I mean, I think there is a lack of faith present, but I think that that misses the heart of what's going on with this. There's something bigger taking place. There may have been a lack of courage. We've seen that with Gideon before. It's not hard to believe that Gideon would drop the ball. But I believe there are two more significant things at play. Whether Gideon shows a lack of faith or not, something else is happening. Here it is. First, Gideon is trying to encourage those who are gathered with him. Because remember, the Israelites had come from all over to fight Midian. They didn't have the encounter with the angel of the Lord that Gideon had. They didn't hear what Gideon had heard. All they know is there's a dude from Israel who says that now God's going to deliver us, deliver Midian into our hands. You want to go fight. And they're tired of being oppressed. And they say, sure, let's go fight. And they show up and they look in the valley and they see the hordes of the enemy that swarm like locusts, as the Bible says. There's probably a little bit of trepidation. And so, so, Gideon is trying to encourage them by, by having God reveal to the people that Gideon is in fact charged by God to be the deliverer of Israel. He's trying to get them to understand that the Lord is with us. But second, there's something else happening. And I would say it's even more important. God is actually telling a story. Once again, yes, God is declaring to his people that he is a faithful God. Now track with me here. Before they ever step foot onto the battlefield, he is reminding them that he has a track record of deliverance. Yeah. We didn't talk about this last week, but it's interesting. When you take the call of Gideon and place it side by side with the call of Moses, they are almost identical. Let me show you. When Gideon is called, there's a reference to Midian in Judges 11. When Moses is called, there's a reference to Midian in Exodus 3.1. When Gideon is called, the angel of the Lord appears in Judges 6, 11, and 12. When Moses is called, the angel of the Lord appears in Exodus 3.2. For Gideon, there is a promise of divine presence in Judges 6.12. For Moses, there is a promise of divine presence in Exodus 3.12. When Gideon is called, deliverance from Egypt is mentioned in Judges 6.13. When Moses is called, deliverance from Egypt is mentioned in Exodus 3, 7 through 8. When Gideon is called, he objects to the call in Judges 6.16. When Moses is called, he objects to the call in Exodus 3.11. When Gideon is called, he is told to deliver the people in Judges 6.16. When Moses is called, he is told to deliver the people in Exodus 3.10. When Gideon is called, the Lord gives him a sign in Judges 6.17. When Moses is called, the Lord gives him a sign in Exodus 3.12. I'm showing you that God is proving his faithfulness once again to his people. But it gets even better. Not only are their callings similar, but the affirmation of their calls mirror one another. Gideon was concerned that Israel wouldn't believe that he was God's deliverer. Moses was concerned that the people wouldn't believe that he was God's deliverer. And in both cases, God gives two signs. In Gideon, it involves the fleece. And I like how Miles Van Pelt notes it. I'm just going to read you his paragraph because he said it better than I could say it, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. He says, In the same way, the signs of Gideon correspond to similar signs given to Moses in Exodus 4. 
There the Lord gives Moses two signs. Do you remember them? The sign of the staff changing into the serpent and the sign of the leprous hand being made clean. And the elements of the sign are symbolic of the events which they point to. For example, with Moses, the staff that becomes the serpent represents Pharaoh because Pharaoh wears the image of the serpent on his crown. Moses is then commanded to take the serpent with his hand and it turns back into a staff. And this sign demonstrates that the Lord will indeed give Pharaoh into the hand of Moses. The signs are performed so that the Israelites will believe that God has raised up Moses to deliver his people. In the same way, the fleece signs of Gideon are intended to demonstrate that the Lord has indeed raised up Gideon to deliver Israel from Midianite oppression. In other words, the faithful God who was is the faithful God who is. We've seen it before. This is the story of Judges, the reality that if God has ever been faithful before, if he has ever been good before, if he has ever delivered before, it is the guarantee that he is still faithful and he is still good and he still delivers. But it gets even better than that because even the signs Gideon asks for have meaning in God's telling a story. Like God understands how fickle our faith is. I mean, sign after sign, testimony. If I'm God, I would have given up on them. Can I just be honest? If I'm God, I would have given up on myself. But God is so faithful that he keeps reminding us that I am a good God. I don't change. I don't waver. You might be fickle, but God is not. But here's what I want you to see. The signs have meaning. So the land, the dew, and the fleece are all significant to Israel. Because Israel would have understood the land to represent them. Because in the Old Testament, and I got references to prove it, I'm just not going to get into them all, right? Israel is known by the land. So they hear the land, they think of themselves. The fleece is symbolic because how has Midian been described over and over? By their camels, by their animals, the swarms of them. And so the fleece represents Midian. Now, in the Old Testament, the dew, you see it in Genesis, you see it in Exodus, you see it in Deuteronomy, dew always represents the blessing of God. So watch this. I'm telling you, God is something else. So the first sign, the dew is on the wool. So who has the blessing? Midian does. It's the current situation that they are in. The land has nothing. They are dry. They are desolate. It is their very situation. Midian has all the blessings. And in the second sign, God's saying, watch this, the land is covered in dew and the wool is utterly dry. And what God is declaring to his people is watch me reverse your situation. Watch me change the blessing. Here's what I want you to see for all of Gideon's faults, for all of his shortcomings. One thing that Gideon knew is that even before the battle started, he needed to go to God. I don't know if it's because his faith was weak and he turned to God. That seems to be what Israel does frequently, but they go to God. It's a weak faith, but it's a faith. Or I don't know if he knew, led by the Spirit, that, that this was what God wanted to encourage the people before the battle started. I don't know. But all I know is that Gideon knew he needed God before he ever stepped foot on the battlefield. Here's, here's what I'm trying to tell you. So do you. I know. I know that before the trial comes, before the hardship comes, before the battle comes, there is, there is no active hardship, no pain in your life. It's easy to forget about God. Can we just be honest for a minute? If you don't want to, I'll be honest. It's easy for me, your pastor, to forget about God. The bank account's got money in it. The food in the cabinet, right? My kids are finally acting right for just 10 minutes. 
My wife and I, we're vibing. Everything's going good. The family's healthy. Job's going well. It is easy to forget God. It's easy to act like he, he's had no part in any of that. But can I tell you that it's in the seasons where there is no fight when we need to be reminding ourselves more than anything that God is faithful for what he has done? And there's a twofold reason for that. First, because it will produce in us a dependence on and remembrance of, a remembrance of what God has done that can sustain us when the bottom does fall out. Listen, trust me, as somebody who's walked with, some of y'all have walked with the Lord longer than me, and so you guys have more of a testimony, but as somebody who's walked with the Lord for over 20 years, it is hard to cultivate a dependence on God in the tough seasons. It's hard to try to create that when it's already going bad. It is hard to reflect on the beauty of God in the ugly seasons when you haven't seen him as beautiful when things were going easy. It is hard to reflect on the faithfulness of God when everything around you screams what David experienced in Psalm 3, 2, that many say about me, there is no help from God. But the thing is, God has never been shy about his track record. God has never been shy about giving you reasons to worship even when things are going smooth. And what I'm trying to tell you is that in the moments when there is no fight, those are the moments to press into God all the more. Because the second reason it matters is we need God before the battle is because the battle will always come. It will always come. Like we can get tricked into thinking that this peace is going to last forever. But let's be honest. How, long, how many of us have had extended seasons of no struggle? Extended seasons of peace. And if you have, eh, that might be its own issue. Because the Bible tells us that, again, the passages that we say so often, those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome this world. Don't be surprised, Peter says, when the fiery test comes upon you to test you as if though something strange were happening to you. Suffering and struggle is not the oddity for the Christian. That's what's normal. And so just a word of caution, you're sitting here like, my life's good. You might want to examine your walk then. Because the Christian life is marked by struggle and the hard seasons. Come. Yes, God is good and he gives seasons of rest and respite where we can take a deep breath. And it's in those moments that we prepare to walk right back into the fire. And if we don't understand that we need God before the battle, we're going to have a hard time standing when the battle comes. Because whether you are ready or not, the trial will come. That sickness will come. That bank account will enter out and empty out faster than you ever imagined. And we want to be like Job, where our cry is that no matter what is going on, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. So we see that, that Gideon's already showing us of our need for God before the battle. But as the story continues and we move into chapter 7, we see the next movement in the text, and now the battle is at hand. And what, what I want you to see is this. We need God in the battle. We need God before the battle, and we need God in the battle. So it's time for Gideon to fight. That's where we are in the story. And he has 32,000 troops to battle Midian, but God is going to flip the script on him a little bit. And we, now we read in, in verse Two of chapter 7, as we started, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. So here is what God does first. I mean, let's, 
pause about kind of the oddity of that statement. You, you're about to battle a huge army, but you got too many soldiers to fight them. So, God, so God's going to dwindle the army. And the first thing he does is he says, listen, Gideon, you tell them that if any of you are afraid to fight, you can go home. Now, this actually isn't unheard of for Israel. In Deuteronomy 20, God actually gives laws regulating how it is that Israel is to fight. And one of the laws that God says is that anyone who, who is afraid doesn't have to fight. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 8, it says, The officers will continue to address the army and say, Is there any man who is afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home so that his brothers won't lose heart. So, so it's not odd for them to say, Listen, if you're scared, go. We don't, we don't want you on the battlefield. It ain't going to work out for you. So, Mo, so Gideon says it to him. 22,000 troops leave. So that leaves Gideon with 10,000 men. All right, it's not as good as 32,000, but that's still a lot for God to work with. Well, God's not done. And so verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many troops. Now we've, you know, Gideon's had kind of a rough rap with us. But if I'm Gideon, I'm going to be a little confused at what's taking place here. Like, you, you brought 32,000, God, and now 22,000 of them are gone. We got 10. Like, all right, this is a stretch, God, but I believe you can do it. And God's like, well, that's still too many to fight. Like, some of y'all probably not been in fights. The more you have, the better it goes. I've been on the receiving end of that. It went well for them. It didn't go well for me. I'm not going to tell you if I've been on the other side. But the grace of God. So God, God has Gideon send the, man down, the men down to the water for a drink. The men don't know what's going on. Midian says, listen, we're about to fight. Everybody go get a drink. And what Midian's supposed to do is watch them and see how they drink the water. Of all the things God could have done, how they drink the water. And two options. God says some of them are going to reach down with their hand. and Some of them, the Bible says, they're going to put their face in and lap it like a dog. That's where we're at in the story. There's no law about this. God's just making this up. God's, God's doing his thing. God can separate however he wants to separate. So he tests them. After the test, 300 men are left. 300 out of 32,000, 300. Listen, this is better than the movie 300. This is real, okay? Don't watch it. I'm not endorsing it. 300 men, 32,000, 300. Now let's go back and remember Midian from Judges 6, verses 4 and 5. They encamped around against them and destroyed the produce of the land even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat as well as no ox, no sheep, no donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number and they entered the land for one purpose to lay waste to it. A host, a swarm, 300 Judges 7, 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped up water and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. Things looked real good for Gideon 24 hours ago. Now he's left with 300 men to somehow conquer the Midianites. And in Gideon's mind, I can't fault the dude. I can't. I cannot. This ain't going to go well. Now look with me beginning at verse 9. It says, That night the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, 
Go down with Purah, your servant, and listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, the Malachites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley again. Here it is, like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. And when Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp and struck a tent and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And his friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. And he returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Okay, you preach five sermons out of that. So I'm going to try to roll through it quickly. There are a few things I want you to note about this. Notice first that Gideon is afraid, as evidenced by his decision to go down to the camp. So what God says to him is, listen, go fight him. You won. I got you. I already won the battle. Just go see. Or if you're afraid, go down to the Midianite camp, kind of sneak around. Don't take your 300, just you and your servant. And listen to what the Midianites are saying. Even the enemy knew. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. All right, so he's, go down. Two options, right? You can go down and fight, or you can go down and listen and be encouraged. He goes down because he's afraid. He had already had the signs of the fleece. He'd already met with the angel of the Lord. God had shown him time and time again that God was for him and not against him. But what this decision tells us is that when, when, when God took away all Gideon's earthly resources, you see what he was truly banking on. Listen to me, it's, it's one thing to say you trust God when you have a backup resource. Come on, it, it, it is. Like, I'm, I'm going to take this leap of faith, but if this doesn't go well, my bank account will cover me. My friends have my back. It's one thing to trust God when you have backup resources. It's another thing altogether to trust God when he's all you've got. You see, the faith that we have to fight to cultivate is not a faith in God and. It's not a faith in God and a faith in your bank account. It's not a faith in God and the faith of those doctors. It's not a faith in God and the faith in your job. No, the faith that we are talking about is the Psalm 73, 26 kind of faith. My My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the faith God wants. Strip everything away. But if I've got God, I've got all that I need. It's the faith that believes that if everything else is gone, but God is for you, you're fine. Let's be honest, that's a hard faith to cultivate. But I want you to notice this. The wording is very interesting. This is the second thing I want to point out about that section. The wording is very interesting. In verse 9, in the Hebrew, it actually says, Arise and go down, for I have handed it over to you. So that's his first option, right? Arise, go down, fight them. You won. Second option, verse 10. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, go down. All right. You missed it. If you trust me, go down. If you're afraid, go down. I find it somewhat ironic and instructive that there is no scenario in which he doesn't go down. He was either going down with faith or he was going down with fear, but he was going down there. There was no way he wasn't going to end up in the Midianite camp. 
It's interesting because what we see with Gideon is that in his fear, he prolongs the battle, but he doesn't avoid it. He didn't get out of it. He still ended up where God wanted him to be. He just prolonged the inevitable. And I wonder if there are battles right now in our life that we are prolonging simply because we refuse to trust the promises of a faithful God. But I want to tell you, ain't no way you're not going down into those trials. It is the means by which God refines your faith. And I wonder if maybe we're stuck in some of these heartaches because we refuse to trust the promise of a faithful God. So where does Gideon go? He goes down. He sneaks in. He hears the testimony of God's deliverance from the very people God is going to deliver them from. Even the enemy knew that the battle was lost. I don't, have time to, I don't have time to preach it like I feel it, church. I don't have time to preach it like I feel it. But I wonder what our lives would look like if we believed what the enemy already knows. I wonder. Christ already won. The tomb is empty. Death is dead. Sin has lost its grip on us. And Satan and the powers and the principalities of hell, they know it. They're fighting a lost cause. And I wonder if we believed... What they know, how our lives would look different. We said it before. The issue is not whether or not God is going to win. The issue is whether, when you're going to catch up to the victory that's already won. He's already won. I feel a little better. It wasn't exactly how I felt like preaching it, but I'm a little But I want you to see this now. Look at verse 15. And when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down in worship. He bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Notice, church, how quickly fear is turned to worship when Gideon's perspective changes. When he begins to believe and trust that God can do the seemingly impossible. There's so much good stuff here, church. You see, that's our struggle. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced. That, so it, I'll just speak for me. I, I mean, I know some of you really well. We got a lot of visitors. I can't speak for you. I know me. I'm convinced that so often the reason I fail to trust God in the midst of trial is because I can't see from his perspective. Yeah. Let me tell you, tell you a story. I actually heard a preacher give a similar example. I was like, man, I have that same example, so I'm going to steal it and use it and act like it's mine. But I got to get a little bit of credit. So it didn't, didn't originate with me. The story's true, though. I don't have a lot of memories um, from my childhood. I don't know why. I always joke, I think it's because I'm trying to fill my brain with too much stuff right now. I can't remember. So I don't have, like some, some people can remember like family vacations. Of, I don't have a lot of recollections of my childhood. It's not because it was bad. It was in it. My parents are here. So I, I had a good childhood. I did. I had a good childhood. I don't have a lot of memories, but I have one in particular. Mom, you remember when you used to cross stitch? You remember that? Some of y'all are like, what is that? Like, I don't. Uh, they put a needle in with some thread made pretty pictures, right? But I do have one visceral memory, memory as a child. I remember I would sit on the floor and play. I would sit on the floor and play. And I remember this time. Mom, you might not. It's, it's real. I remember it. <laughs> I'm playing with my toys. I don't remember what the toys were, but I remember looking up at the back of the cross stitch and thinking, you really aren't good at this, Mom. <laughs> like... The back of a cross, I don't know if you've seen the back of a cross. Like, they just throw in thread coming back. It doesn't matter. It's, it's ugly. And I remember thinking, I don't even remember what she was making, but I just remember thinking, sorry, Mom, like, you're not good at this. 
But track with me here. I remember when she would turn and show me the front of the cross stitch. And I didn't know it then, but I know it now. God was teaching me a valuable lesson. The problem with so many of us is we're looking up at our problems while God looks down on them. And if we could only see it how God sees it. And there's no guarantee that God's going to say, let me show you right now. But see, what faith believes is that if we could just see what God could see, we would know that the pain, the ugliness, the messed up thread in our life right now is weaving together a beautiful picture of faith that one day God will show us. We get so frustrated by our problems because we think that the way we see it is the only way that it can be. But when we believe that there is a God that sits outside of space and time and is weaving together the story of our faith, he sees the beginning from the end. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The only way that's true is if God's looking down while we look up. So now, Gideon's ready to fight. It took a minute, but we got there. Let me read to you what happens. Whew, I got to move quick. Uh, Judges 7, beginning in verse 16. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside of it on the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. I'm not going to press into it. Remember Jericho. There's some history here. Then you will say for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. After the sentries had been stationed, they blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns to blow in their right hands. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army began to run. And they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, here it is. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. The Lord caused the men in the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. He caused confusion. They fled to the Acacia house in the direction of uh, uh, Zerah as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Taboth. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. I love this. I know we read a lot, but did you see what God did? God dwindled Gideon's army from 32,000 down to 300. And when it comes time to fight, all that they had to do was blow a horn. They, they didn't even take swords. Did you catch that? They took a jar, a fire, and a horn. Again, I don't know if you've been in a fight. But weapons matter. <laughs> All they had to do was blow a horn. They didn't swing a sword. God didn't even ask them to take them. And God, once again, throws the army into confusion, so they start killing themselves. Gideon thought 300 was too little, but God didn't think 300 was little enough. So he handled it himself. Listen to me, church. The reason we need God in the midst of the battle is because God doesn't need you. 
He has never needed us to make sure our victory was secure. If there is anything that shows us this clearly, it is the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. We, we contributed nothing to that victory. Where we failed, Jesus succeeded. Our sin separated us from God. There was no chance for us to be made right with Him. The wages of sin is death. That's it. We had brought death. Nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. But God loved us so much that He said, I don't need an army. I don't need a political movement. I don't need a GoFundMe account. I'll go down there and do it myself. And He came as Jesus who lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then He died the death that we deserved to die. He was exalted. He was elevated on that cross. He was crushed for our sins. And He died and was buried. And three days later, He rose from the dead and in that whole story, who did God not need? You. He was sufficient all by himself. We need God before the battle. And we need God in the battle. But watch this. Finally, we need God after the battle. See, unfortunately, Gideon paints a picture for us of what it looks like when we forget this truth that we need God after the battle. And to some degree, we should have had a sense that it was coming, right? Did you, did you catch where kind of Gideon slipped? Remember back in 718, as they're getting ready to go fight, after he hears the dream interpreted, he gets all excited about winning the battle. He goes back and prepares the 300, and then he says in verse 18, when I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns around the camp, camp, then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Why is his name in there? Gideon ain't doing nothing. He's not doing it. God is. This isn't for Gideon. This is for the Lord. It was the worship of the wrong thing that got him in this predicament in the first place. And here's Gideon. We're going to do it for the Lord and for me. And for me. You know what the worst part was? Do you remember what they yelled? A sword for Gideon and a sword for the Lord. So you already get the sense that Gideon is getting a little puffed up as if he, he hadn't just been doubting the Lord, as if he hadn't just been afraid, as if he hasn't been sufficient this entire time. So now the battle is over and you see what happens when Gideon thinks he doesn't need God after the battle. Let me show you real quick. I promise I'm bringing this thing to a close. First, Gideon forgets his own shortcomings. He forgets his, his own shortcomings. Look at chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. It says, Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. So at this time, Midian scattered, right? They killed, the, a lot, they killed themselves, and some of them just started running. And so now, now all those 32,000, God allowed them to just start pursuing them. They're going to end it right here. So they're exhausted. They're still in pursuit. But Gideon said to the men of Sakoth, please give us some loaves of bread to the troops under my command because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zebah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Sakoth asked, are Zebah and Zalmunna now in your hands that we should give you bread to your army? So they're doubting. They're doubting that Gideon's going to be able to win the battle. And Gideon replies, very well, when the Lord has handed Zabah and Zalmunna over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. And he does it. 
He captures the kings. He goes back and kills the people who wouldn't give him bread all because they doubted. Gideon forgot that he has been marked by doubt this entire time. Listen, when you forget that you need God after the battle, you'll forget the grace that was given to you before the battle and during the battle and you think that you're better than you are. The reason you think that person is so annoying is because you forgot how annoying you are. And the reason you think that person is so sinful is because you have forgotten how sinful you are. And when we continue to worship God after the battle, it has a way of humbling us. They might be annoying, but so are you. I had no one in mind when I said that. No one. But second, second problem, Gideon fakes holiness. Look at Judges 8, 22 and 23. It says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Right? At first glance, we're like, finally, Gideon, you got it right. Right? Like you're saying, they want Gideon to be king. They want all Gideon's descendants to be king. They're like, Gideon, you delivered it. It seems like Gideon gets it right. I'm not going to be your king. I'm not a king. The reason that God used me to deliver you was because God wants you to see him as your God and as your king. It seems like Gideon is, is finally picking up this holiness thing. But then you get to, to chapter 8, verse 30. And it says, Gideon had 70 sons and his own offspring since he had many wives. But Gideon... Man, I went to the wrong place. Let me go to the Bible instead. Here it is. We're getting there. I'm just going to tell you. You get to the end, and Gideon has a son. And one of those sons he names Abimelech, who will become king in the next chapter. Do you know what Abimelech means in Hebrew? My father is king. Okay, Gideon, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not a king. God's your king, has a son. I'm going to name him your father. My father is king. There's a fake holiness there. Gideon wants to be the king. Gideon wants to rule. And so on the outset, it looks like he is holy and he recognizes God. But at the end of the day, he thinks that he deserves the credit for the victory. And it's a fake holiness. But here's the third thing I want you to see. And we'll end with it here. The problem when we don't think that we need God after the battle We see it here. Third, Gideon attempts to rob God of worship. When he doesn't believe he needs God after it, he he attempts to rob God of worship. uh, Chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Then he said to them, let us make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we agree to give them. So they spread out a cloak, and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earring he requested was 43 pounds of gold, in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod from all of this and put it in Orpha, his hometown. An ephod is a priestly garment, something that the priests would wear. signifies their holiness, their set-apartness. He makes one for himself puts it in his hometown, and then all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. You see, robbing God of his worship can take the place of worshiping something else instead of God. 
that we, we worship ourselves as if we won the victory. We worship our friends as if they won the victory. We worship our ingenuity. But sometimes, robbing God of his worship is just refusing to worship when we should. You see, I think for most Christians, that's where we get jammed up. It's not that we're out there putting up idols and making faith, fake gods. We rob God of worship when we walk in here and act like God isn't worthy of the songs that we sing. And then we go Monday through Saturday and act like God's not worthy of our wonder and awe when we wake up in the morning, when we walk with our family, when we're at our jobs. You see, if we forget that we need God after the battle, we'll start to put the success on ourselves. We'll start to act like we did what only God could do. But here's where I want to end this thing. Let me try to land this plane. Very end of this, Judges 8, verses 33 and 35, it says, When Gideon died... The Israelites turned and prostituted themselves by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hand of their enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good that he had done for Israel. Here's, here's where I want to end. We want our lives to be living, breathing testimonies to just how good God is. We want our lives to be living, breathing testimonies of the amazing faithfulness of God's deliverance. But the only way this will happen is if we live our lives in such a way that we reflect the truth that we need God all the time. We need God all the time. And the good news, church, and the gospel declares it to us, is that God is faithful all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray, Lord, that you would, through the power of your spirit, take, take my feeble attempt to explain your word and that you would use it in a mighty way to shape the hearts and minds of those who are your children, God, that the spirit would impress upon each and every one of us the truths that we need, the conviction that we need, the encouragement that we need. God, I pray that you would just remind us that we need you. God, we need you. But the beautiful truth is that you are available. We're not searching for you as if you're not there. God, you want to be known. You want to be loved. And you are worthy. And so I pray, God, that we would seek you before we ever enter into the hard seasons, that we would continue to seek and depend on you in the hard seasons. And when you give grace to remove us from the hard seasons, that we would continue to need you and worship you and praise you for you are a faithful God. God let us never forget. Let us never be like Israel and forget the deliverance that you have won for us. Give us grace because we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, at this time, I want to encourage us to take just a minute and remember, remember what it is that God has done for us, specifically what he's done for us through the